Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. You know, as we uh, begin our, our message here, as you're turning your Bibles there, I, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about just uh, the response that believers had towards Jesus. There was a response of doubt, right? They they looked at Jesus, they knew Jesus, but there was always there was a doubt within them. And so we spent a whole session dedicated to understanding doubt and most importantly, how to overcome doubt. And so as we looked at this for the unbelievers, today we're actually going to be looking at two additional responses, but not from believers. We're going to look at responses from unbelievers. Okay? And and it's going to be both a critical as well as a cold response. Towards Jesus. So you think about this, right? You think about a critical and cold response towards Jesus. And this is from the unsaved. And I know that most of us, before we came to know Jesus, right? How many of us were cold and critical towards Christianity or towards the Lord? You know, that's many of us, right? And so I truly believe that as we go over this, there's a reason for us hearing it because we need to be sensitive to others that are the unsaved, to, to those that are critical and those that are cold. You know, I'll give you a, a, quick, uh, a quick testimony here. When, when I, you know, before I got saved, the first Christian church I went to was Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. I got saved at Calvary Chapel Montebello, but I, I, the first church that I went to was Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. And when I first got there, believe me, my heart was critical. I criticized the chairs, I criticized the carpet, I criticized the altar, I criticized... Even the pastor that was up there, right? And I said, in all of this, all I did is when I went in there, I was so cold and, and hardened towards the message, towards the work of God, that I just went in there and I fell asleep. And my wife was not very happy because she's been praying for me, right, to get saved. But, but this is the way I was, right? And I believe that this really paints a picture for all of us as to how we are before we come to know the Lord. And so as we go over this, this message will really help us to understand the hearts of the unbeliever. You know, how we can effectively minister to them and, and really just, uh, just, just share with them and be reminded of, of who we were before. And so, the Word of God is always a mirror to us. It's a mirror to the unbeliever, it's a mirror to the believer. And so, as we look at this, let's, let's go ahead and begin as, uh, as uh, Jesus said here in Matthew 11 verse 15. And not that we're beginning there, but I do want to share this one with you. Is that Jesus says, he who has ear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus wants us listening, right, to everything that he has to say. And we know one thing is that as, as we listen, the Word of God really sets us free, right? Because as Jesus said, he says that when you hear the truth, the truth will set you free. And most importantly, do you remember what Peter said to Jesus? He says, Jesus, you know what? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And as we think about this, right, these words that we have that Jesus is going to speak to us, they're powerful words. They're alive. They're, they're sharper than any two-edged sword. One thing about the Word of God, it cuts to the heart. And this is what's so awesome about the Word of God. As it's revealed to us, it cuts to the heart. It really reveals to us the inner, inner depths of our heart, how wicked, how evil, how bad we are. And so as we look at this, I want us to begin to read beginning in verse 15, uh, verse 16, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 16. I mean, to verse 24. It says this, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the, uh, the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in so Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You know, as we look at this, right, this is broken down into two types of hearts. The first one is the critical heart, beginning in verse 16 all the way to verse 19. And then the cold heart, which is beginning in verse 20 all the way down to verse 22. And as we look at this, right, I'm first going to talk about the critical heart. The critical heart, the critical response that people have towards Jesus. Let's read this, let's go verse by verse and let's look at the first two verses to talk about this. It says there, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. You know, Jesus, as we know, the letters are in red. And for those of you that have Bibles with red lettering, it really signifies the words of Christ. So we have here, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes according to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. And he begins by asking a question as we're in this section. He says, but to what shall I liken this generation? You know, when we look at this, right, Jesus is talking about his generation. And I want to share with you, I'm going to... I'm going to just simplify this generation as, as saying to all of you that this generation, from the beginning of time all the way up until now, the way to simplify is to say that we are all sinners. But what happens is when we look at the world that we live in, and especially here in the U.S., everything likes to be categorized, right? They like to say that, you know what, there's certain generations at certain times. And so I'm going to give you six of them so you can see how the U.S. sort of categorizes them. But for us, we know that from the beginning of Adam and Eve, the way to answer it is that we are all sinners. But look at this. From 1901, and we're going to begin from the, ni- from the 1900s up until, nine, uh, up, um, up until now. From 1901 to 1926, it's called the GI generation. The GI generation. It is actually the generation from World War I and World War II. And when they began to talk about these generations, understand this, is that they began to say that these people from this generation were team players. They had a community-minded, you know, they were community-minded. They had the mindset of, of community, of, of being oneness. There was also personal morality. There was a loyalty to jobs, schools, people, and especially marriage. And then came after that was a mature and silent generation from 1927 to 1945. This was the post-war. There was a sense of, of joy, a sense of happiness, right, with the wars that were over. Everybody was talking about peace. There were lots of jobs. The suburbs were growing. Television came. Rock and roll. Cars, right? All of these things were going on. And then came the baby boomers, right, from 1946 to 1964. Who's in this generation? Show of hands. 1946 to 1964. There's a number of us that are in here. And when I began to examine this, right, it really points to this type of, to this generation, right? It was the me generation, right? The self-righteous, the self-centered. It was the ones that were buying it now and pay later with credit cards, right? This is when it all started. And this was actually the first generation to begin divorce, okay? And then came Generation X, 1965 to 1980. How many are 1965 to 1980 here? There's a number of you that are 1965 to 1980. And you're actually the kids from the, from actually from the divorce and career driven parents. That's what is the majority of, 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 of parents that, that got divorced and they're career driven individuals. And a lot of them, because they didn't have the parents at home, they became what? Street smart. And these were actually late to marry after they were living together with who? Where there's significant others. This is this generation that says, you know what, let's live together before we get married. And also, this generation is also one, uh, this generation of, of baby boom, uh, uh, of, I'm sorry, of, uh, of, uh, of generation X. It's, they were quick to divorce and not very loyal to one another. Then, generation Y, who's 1981 to 2000? Anybody here 1981 to 2000? A few of you, there's a few of you that are here 1981 to 2000. You're the millennium kids, right? You're the 9-11 generation. Optimistic, focused. You know what? Respecting authority, academically pressured. And then now we have the generation Z. Okay, this is those that are born after 2001. And remember, this is the way the U.S. categorizes the generations. 
But I say this because, see, it's, it's really pointing to, to, again, the generation that Jesus is talking about. But I want to share this with you. You know what the most common name, the most common last name in the U.S. during this time period? It used to be Smith. You know what it became? Rodriguez. Is that crazy or what? But this is the generation that is computer and technologically, you know, savvy, right? I mean, this is the age of technology. These are the ones that want the large screen TVs, right? The video games, the cell phones, the tablets, social media, computers, leaving toys for what? For the web. And one thing is about this generation is they're savvy consumers and they know what they want and how to get it. But as I mentioned to you, when we look at the generation, remember the Bible doesn't categorize them or or divide them. We know one thing, as the Bible says, we are all sinners. And Jesus gives us an illustration here as we're talking about generations, right? Jesus gives us really an illustration of the generation to help us understand the generation. And what we're talking about really is also going to point to us. But as we look at this, right, we, we read it there, right? This generation, he says, is, is, like the, is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to the com- companions, saying, we played the flute and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. You know, Jesus likens the generation to children. So he's talking about the children. They behave like children, like these children. And, and remember, we're talking about these critical hearts, these, the critical response towards Jesus. Even though the kids today, even though they like social media, one thing you can never take away from children is the way they act or the way they pretend. The way they play, right? I mean, they're always acting. They're always pretending. They love to play. They love to act. And so Jesus reminds us of what they did, of what that generation did, which is the same generation that we have today. They used to sit in the marketplaces, right? And and this was a pastime that kids had where they could play and act. You know, one of the things that they would do is, just so you know what he's talking about here, is that, remember, weddings and funerals, they were done in the open area. All weddings and funerals were done in the open area. So, guess what the children would do as they play-acted, as they pretended? They would have, what, weddings and they would have funerals. And so, what would they do? They were calling the kids to, hey, come and play with us, right? They're calling their friends and, their, and, and all the other kids, come, let's play, right? Let's, let's, let's now play the flute so we could dance like, like they were dancing at the weddings or, or let's pretend to, to mourn and lament as, as we see everyone doing that. Well, as we see this, right? I mean, these people, they were, they were critical people. These, these kids, basically, they're saying, you know what? We don't want to play that. We don't want to do that. You know what? They're always finding really something to, to complain about. You know, the critical heart, I want you to understand this, is, is really somebody that expresses disapproval and they express it with comments and with judgments. That's what they do, right? That's a critical spirit. So you know, a critical spirit, a critical heart is one that expresses disapproval with comments and judgments. This is what defines a critical person. This is the person that, that likes to, you know, that likes to criticize and what would happen at this time, just so you know, is that they would go to this section there in the, in the cities. It was called the Agora. And the Agora was a gathering place. It was an assembly. And at one time, they used to have the rulers and the kings that would go into this place and they would begin to talk about, you know, what's going on, their military ploys or their victories and all of this stuff. But as time went on, it became really a marketplace. A marketplace where the where people would take, where merchants would take their stalls and their shops and they would sell their stuff. And so while the parents were shopping, guess what the kids were doing? They were play-acting. But Jesus is saying, you know what, I liken this generation to those that are critical, right? To those that are, you know what, that, are, that, that don't want to cooperate, that they don't want to participate, that they don't want to listen, that they don't want to receive. And they're constantly critical. And when you look at critical hearts, we have children here. I want to share this with you. When you have critical hearts, a lot of times this is a, a learned behavior. Not only are we born sinners, but to be critical is really learned. And I want, you to, I, want you to, I want to hit home here because see, for those of you that are critical, right, that, are still, that have still carried this on into your Christian walk, guess what your kids do? They emulate their parents, don't they? See, whatever you are, remember the greatest influence a child will ever have is their parents. 
So how you behave, how you talk, is the way they begin to talk. Did you know that most kids, when you look at their behavior, it's because their parents acted that way. When you look at how they talk, do you know that kids have accents because their parents have accents? Why do you think people say some have a Hispanic accent, right? It's not that, that they, you know, it's just that kids will copy the sounds that their parents say. And so it's all learned behavior. And the same thing it is with critical spirits, with a critical heart. Jesus is saying they have critical hearts because what? They emulate their parents. But you know what? He wants to dig deeper into this critical spirit. And this is why we have now verse 18. It says here, verse 18 and 19, it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by your children. Jesus immediately says, Look at John. He came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. Now I came, you know, eating and drinking. And they say, you know, I'm a glutton and a wine-bibber. I'm a friend of a tax collector and sinner. You know what? They begin to say all these negative things, whether you're good or whether you're bad. You're going to criticize no matter what. And Jesus is bringing this to our attention. And you look at critical people, no matter what, they will constantly be criticizing. They will constantly be critical of others. As we look at these illustrations, right? right? As we examine these illustrations, why are people so critical? I mentioned one, they grow up in an environment that is that, that, that have critical parents. They, 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 they grow up in an environment around them that, that have critical people, and so they, they copy. But I'm going to give you a, f- a few other reasons, because see, if you're critical, this is what the Lord wants to take out of you. Remember, the Word of God is also a mirror, right? The Word of God reveals things to us about who we are, and He wants to do, make changes within us. Critical people criticize... Because they lack self-confidence. See, they lack self-confidence. And they criticize because it's a means to compensate for their inferiority complex. They want to criticize others, right? They're jealous and envious of others. They feel less than others and so they begin to criticize others. Also, as we speak on jealous and envy, what happens is that as others gain popularity or as others begin to to have people flock to them, they aren't happy about it, right? They don't like when they receive when others receive the attention and they and they don't. They don't like it when others are popular and they're not. Another thing about critical people is that usually you're critical is when you're angry and you're upset. Think about when you've been angry and upset at somebody. Don't you become the most critical when you're arguing with them or whatever, right? I mean, this is the way we are as people, right? When we're upset, when we're angry, we become very critical. And we, you know, we're mad at people. And so, these are things to remember as to when you're critical. Examine why you're critical. Is it that you're envious? You know, what is it that you're jealous? Is it that the fact that you lack self-confidence? Maybe you're not as popular as others and and you're jealous and so you want what they have. And so these are the things that that we need to check ourselves too to see, are we being critical for the wrong reasons? And being critical is always for the wrong reason. Understand that. I mean, yes, we're here to reveal things to us, but we do it in in a spirit of love. We're not here to criticize people. And when it came to Jesus and John, understand this, is that they were gaining popularity. People were flocking to them, right? And, and some people didn't like that. Remember, they were becoming popular. The religious leaders didn't like their popularity. You know what? A lot of people were, were mad at them because they were talking about their sin. You know, they were pointing out their sin. They were telling them that, you know what? You guys are hypocrites. You guys are sinners. People weren't happy about that, so they became critical. Remember one thing, when we look at, when we look at Jesus and John, their intention was to just reveal people's sin to them. To bring salvation unto them. They were telling them, repent, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. They had a love for people, but when people are so blinded to their sin, or people are self-righteous, or people are are prideful, they don't want anyone telling them anything they're doing wrong. And this is wrong, right? Remember, we as Christians should always be teachable. And one thing that the devil likes to do is he likes to blind us of our sin. The devil doesn't want you, you know what, wants you to acknowledge your sin. He doesn't want you to see your sin. But the Word of God and the Spirit of God reveal our sin 
to us. And this is why it's so awesome that we go through the Word. You know, when it came to John the Baptist, people looked at John the Baptist and they say, man, look at how he dresses and look at how he eats. This guy has a demon, right? And this is what Matthew tells us, that he came, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, that he came clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Because his appearance was different, because he, what he ate was different, but most of all, it was because of his message that they were critical. They were trying to find any way to be critical of John the Baptist. The same thing with Jesus. Jesus loved to eat and to fellowship. And because he loved to eat and to fellowship, they called him a glutton. He wasn't like John, though. John, remember, John would not taste any wine at all. But Jesus did taste wine. And because he, he had wine, guess what? He was now a wine-bibber. You know what a wine-bibber is? A wine-bibber means you're a habitual drinker. That's a wine-bibber. And because he fellowship with sinners, right? He fellowship with those that, that they didn't like, those that betrayed and their own people, right? Those that were considered the lowest class, like the tax collectors. He said because he, he went after them, he was now, what, a friend of sinners. You know, when we think about this, right, I want to talk about, really, this wine. Because I know when we start talking about Jesus drinking wine, how many of you have always heard others saying, you know what, I can drink because Jesus drank too, right? Why are you convicting me? Why are you judging me? How many have heard that? I think all of us. How many of you said that before you became a Christian? Come on, put your hands up. I know I did. I always said that. I always thought that, right? So let's talk about this, right? Because it's important for us to understand. You know what? Is there anything wrong in having a drink? I want to answer it by this. We are free in Christ. You are walking in liberty. But I'm going to share with you two reasons to consider why you shouldn't be drinking. One is drunkenness. Drunkenness keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? When you begin to drink, believe me, some people say, I can hold my liquor, right? Yeah, right. They have a buzz, right? Start, you know, measuring their alcohol. They're way over the charts. But yet they still say, I can hold my liquor. But look at what the Bible says about, the Word of God says about drinking. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it, by the wine, by the strong drink, is not wise. You're not wise. Because you know, we know the consequences of it, right? Drinking and driving. Being buzzed, you know what, you get pulled over, you're still going to be taken in, right? It's drinking and driving. The most... Just the statement that really puts a, a stamp on this is, is really from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. It talks about the works of the flesh that are evident, and it begins to give you a whole lot of works which we know are sin because the Word of God reveals it to us, and we know in ourselves that they're sin. But the Word of God just brings it, right? As a conscience brings this to our attention, but the Word of God just solidifies it. But in verse 21, it says that drunkenness, okay, those who practice drunkenness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? If you are a habitual drinker, what is a habitual or one that practices this? What does it mean? It means that you do it more than once, right? You look forward to it, whether you do it on weekends, whether you do it once a, once a day, you know what, whatever it is, and, and, you're, and you're drinking, you're getting buzzed, you're getting drunk, then guess what? You've got to consider yourself, am I falling into this category? The second one I really believe speaks to all of us. And I want you to take this one to heart because many of us know about that one, right? But this one really needs to be taken to heart. It's stumbling others. Okay, stumbling others. I mentioned to you that we are all free in Christ. We can have a drink as many... You know what? You can have a drink and you're free to do it. But understand this, is that when you do it, there are other people watching you. Others are watching. And this is why Paul was able to say in Galatians 5 verse 13... He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You are free to do whatever you want. Did you know that? You know, when, isn't this funny? They always, I remember they used to tell me, I used to hear this most. Oh, you know what? You can't do this because you're a Christian. How many have heard that? A lot of us, right? We can't do this because we're a Christian. But yet, they little do they know that we are free to do whatever we want. It's just that we choose not to. See, this is why in Galatians 5.13, he says, Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. You don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. 
but through love serve one another. There's this, there's, there's this mindset that Paul brings to our attention, right? He talks about, remember, through love you serve one another. What does this mean? See, when you cross a line and you're drinking and you're getting drunk, right? You've forgotten your love for others. And the reason I say that is because, see, how many of us want to stumble our loved ones? None of us want to stumble our loved ones. Even people you don't know. Remember, Jesus says, you're not just to love those that love you, but to love those that are your enemies too. You're stumbling your enemies. They're, they're, you're just being a hypocrite, right? You're just bringing them to a point of saying, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. There's a stumbling there. They're saying, I don't want to come to Christianity if I, you know, the way you behave, why do I want to do it? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. This scripture is so critical when it comes to what we're talking about. Because see, a stumbling block, and remember what Jesus said about us being a stumbling block, if you stumble any of His children, as He says in Mark 9.42, it would be better for Him if a millstone were hung around His neck and He were thrown into the sea. This is key, right? I mean, how many of us want to stumble others? I don't want to stumble anyone, right? My personal conviction is here, believe me, as I shared earlier, I was one that used to drink and I had, and I've shared this with you, I've had, when I used to drink as a non-believer, I had four accidents drinking and driving. This was something that I was used to. I remember I used to have blackouts. I wouldn't remember where I was. And you know what? I mean, I think some of us can relate to this, right? Because this is the way we were. And as we look at this, right, imagine this and think of this, right? If, imagine this, if, someone was to see me in a restaurant and I'd have a, a beer with me, what would that do? You know, a lot of people, some people would say, you know what, some people would say, oh, well, you know what, that's between him and the Lord. But there's most people would say, wow, how come he's drinking? I mean, he's talking about not drinking. You know, I'd be stumbling others, right? Some of them would say, you know what, if he's drinking, then you know what, then I could drink, Right? The young in the faith. You know what? That's my pastor. Imagine that. He's having a beer. So you know what? If he has one, guess what? I'm going to have one too. And then it becomes what? A habit to them, right? And, and they're just lost and they're now in this state of drunkenness all the time. What about this one? What about if you saw a picture of me on Instagram or Facebook with some wine or some, some alcohol? It's the same thing. We got to watch out how we, what we do. See, you forget about how you stumble people. And as the Lord says... Don't let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. They're not going to want to come to the faith or they're going to say, that person calls himself a Christian? Do they really represent Christ the way they should? See, all these things we've got to remember. And as the Word of God says, we are to esteem others better than who? Than ourselves. You and I are to esteem others better than ourselves. Yes, my flesh would want one. But you know what? I don't live for my flesh anymore. I don't live for myself. I live for the glory of God. I live for others. I live for Him. And that's what I do. I want to esteem others better than, our, than, than, than myself. I want to talk about this one. Because this is something that, as people always say, well, you know what? Jesus drank, so can I. You know, when we think about this, right? Was the alcohol level... In wine, the same as the alcohol level that is in wine today. I'm going to tell you this, it was not. Okay? I'm going to give you two things here. One, the wine that he drank was not the same wine with the alcohol level that we drink today. That wine was mixed with water. In ancient times, that when they would drink socially and in places, it was diluted with water for drinking. The content was not the same. Most of the time, the alcohol content that was in this wine was about 3 to 4%. Sometimes it got close to 10%. It would never exceed that. See, what happens is the sugar of the grape juice, when, it's fermented, when it ferments in it and you throw in the wild yeast, it begins to increase the alcohol level. When yeast is added to the ancient wines, it produced between 4 to 10% max in alcohol. Today's wines, I want you to understand this, today's wines average between 12 to 18% alcohol due to the modern fermentation. 
when they add sulfur dioxide and saccharomyces. Okay? And this is a GMO yeast. And so in summary, I just want you to understand this. The alcohol that Jesus drank, first of all, had lower content of alcohol and it was mixed with water. So it was not the way we have it today. But So you understand what we're talking about. This is what was happening. But yet, because they saw Jesus drinking, again, remember they're critical. They're going to call him what? A wine bibber. But I love what Jesus says at the end, right? But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus is saying here, you know what? You guys could be critical of, of John. You could be critical of me. But guess what? Our message is justified by the hearers that receive it. And what he meant by this is that the wisdom of John, the wisdom of repentance, the wisdom of Jesus, which was the wisdom of salvation, is justified by her parents. and what, By her children, I should say. And what this means is that look at those that receive the message. You see a changed life. You see transformation in their, their life. You could be critical of everything that I do, of everything that I say, of, everything, of how I act, but look at how the message is effective. It transforms lives. It cleans people's lives. It makes them into new creations. It restores lives. So the wisdom that we give out is justified by her children. In other words, as I mentioned to you, you know what? You see the change. Can you criticize that change? How many of us, right? We're all changed. We're all brand new. When people see you today, how many say, man, you're not the same like you were before? At least that's what I hope they would say of you, right? You're changed. You're brand new, man. You're not partying. You're not drinking. You're not doing what you used to do. You're not sleeping around. Man, you're not living with somebody anymore. See, these are all things that God, you know what? As we hear the message, as we allow the Word of God to cut our hearts, it begins to change us. And this is why Jesus says, Wisdom is justified by her children. So now let's move to the cold response. Beginning in verse 20. It says, it says this. It says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. You begin to hear, Jesus gets into a harder rebuke here. He begins to, you know, to become harder in his message. And you know why he became harder? Think of it this way. If you were to see somebody, imagine this, if you saw somebody giving sight to the blind, if you saw somebody raise somebody from the dead, if you saw somebody allowing the, the mute to speak and the deaf to hear, and you saw it with your very eyes, and you still didn't repent towards his message, that's crazy. See, God can only do these things, and can any of you do these things? I don't think so, right? Understand this regarding God's divine, regarding God's miracles. The reason why He did miracles was to point to His divine nature and to move people to repent. That's why Jesus did miracles. He wanted to reveal His divine nature to people and He wanted them to repent because if He could do this, if He could do what God is doing, then they would receive His message and they would repent. The problem is, is that they didn't do this, right? And these people that were in these cities... Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. This is where Jesus hung out and He was doing all these miracles and none of them wanted to repent. As we op- as I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. It talks about these cities, right? It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, He departed to Galilee, and le- leaving Nazareth, He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. As you see here, right? And then in verse 23, it talks about all the miracles that he did, all the diseases that he was healing, all the, you know what, the, the torments, the demon possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, all that he did, he healed them. And after doing all of this in their cities, the people still did not repent. Do you see how cold hearts are towards Jesus? And, and this is why he's talking about them. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Woe to you. You know what the word woe means? Woe means judgment. But it also implies pity and sorrow. And Jesus is saying, how tragic it is for you, Corazon, Bethsaida, 
How tragic it is for you that, you know what, that you saw all of these works and you didn't repent. If they were done in Tyre and Sidon, believe me, they would have repented. Did you know that these three cities that Jesus mentions, Bethsaida, uh, Chorazon, and Capernaum, that all of these three cities are now in ruins? All of them are extinct today. None of them exist. The only thing you can see about these cities is, is the ruins that are left. The Galilean Jews, believe me, this is, they looked at Tyre and Sidon, they looked at them as the worst. Why? Because this was a seaport city. This is where all the sailors came. This is where all the immorality was happening, right? This is where everybody would go, right? They would be in the seaport. They would do all these, these immoral things, right? As the sailors got off the boats, they would look for women. The women would come there to get money or whatever. And, and they would be, you know, messing around. They would be drinking, partying. All of this stuff was going around. This is where the riffraffs went, right? This is where any most, any, most of these cities, this is what happens when they're by the sea. And Tyre and Sidon is right by the Mediterranean Sea. It's right there. At the seashore. And one of these things about, another thing about these, these cities is that they were, they were worshiping Baal. They had false gods. And with these false gods comes what? A moral behavior. Remember, a lot of times when they worship these, these, these gods, they would have what? Orgies and all of this stuff. And this is what would happen. And so you have all of these things. And for the Jews, they would say, man, Tyre and Sidon is the worst. But Jesus is saying, you know what? If they would have saw the miracles that you saw, they would have repented. You know, as we say, they, they says this, right? They would have been on sackcloth and ashes. See, sackcloth and ashes was a sign of true repentance. Sackcloth was that coarse, black camel hair that, like John the Baptist wore, but it was turned black and they would throw ashes on themselves as a symbol of mourning. Jesus is saying, if they saw the miracles, this is exactly what they would have done. They would have repented. But then we go into Capernaum. Verse 23 says this, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. How many of us remember Sodom? We all heard of Sodom on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what? All this sexually immoral, perverse behavior was, being, was, was happening there. Do you remember Abraham told, uh, told Jesus, he told the Lord, Lord, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare them? And what did Jesus say? Yes. But then Abraham was thinking, man, you know what, that's too many. What about all the way down to 10? If I find 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? And what did Jesus say? Absolutely. Imagine Jesus is saying that Sodom would still be there today if he would have done the same miracles that were done in Capernaum. I want you to know about Capernaum as we read in Matthew chapter 4. This is where Jesus dwelled. Jesus was living in Capernaum there with, in the house of Peter. And remember all the miracles from eight, chapter 8, 9? All of those done, were done in Capernaum and they were seeing all of these things happening. And yet they didn't repent. And then Jesus closes off, the way he closes off with Tyre and Sidon, he says, but I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The day of judgment, the day of judgment that Jesus is talking about is a great white throne judgment when everyone will be judged. The unbeliever, not the believer, the believer will be judged when? At the Bema seat, right? And the unbelievers will be judged when? At the great white throne judgment. That's when they're going to be judged. And so, He's saying that, you know what, it, Jesus will be, that God is going to be more tolerable towards these cities, Tyre, Sid, Sidon, and Sodom and Gomorrah than to you. You know what, as we talk about this, right, it gives us a sense of, of that there's probably different degrees of punishment. And I want you to understand that there is different degrees of punishment, just like Jesus is talking about here. He's saying the ones in Capernaum are going to receive greater judgment than those in Sodom. Imagine, those that are in Bethsaida and Chorazon, they're going to receive greater judgment than those in Tyre and Sidon. I want you to understand that just like there are different degrees of rewards for the believers, there's degrees of punishment for the unbeliever. You know, when we think about this, right, how is an 
a place that separates you throughout eternity from Christ. And when we think about this, right, when we think about hell, was hell created for people? Hell was not created for people. Hell cre- was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one tells us this, right? Those that, that reject Jesus, that reject his message, send themselves to hell. See, what's crazy about all of this is that people think that Jesus or God sends you to hell. Guess what? You send yourself to hell, right, when you reject the gospel. When you desire to practice sin, you send yourself. But here he talks about different degrees of punishment. Did you know that you will all have rewards as believers? For those of you that are believers here, you will have different rewards as a believer. Some of you will receive crowns. Some of you will be given cities to rule over. Some of you will be teachers in the new millennium. Some of you will be captains over the police force. Remember, people, where there's going to be people in the millennial kingdom. And what's amazing about this is that, as the Lord says, faithful in the little things, I will make you ruler over many. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about the new millennial kingdom. That's what he was talking about. So if we are faithful to Christ here on earth, he's going to put us over things in the new millennium. The same thing with, with, with hell. You know what? Depending on how you do and what you do and the sin that you practice, there's going to be different degrees of punishment. Imagine this. I'm going to give you hell in summary here. It is a place of sorrows, according to 2 Samuel 22, verse 6. It is a place of outer darkness, according to Matthew 22:13. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, according to Matthew 25:30. It is a place where fire is not quenched, according to Mark 9:44. It is a place of torment according to Luke chapter 16 verse 23. It is a place of everlasting destruction according to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It is a place where there will be no rest according to Revelation 14.11. It is a place of torment of, with fire and brimstone according to Revelation 21. Imagine this. And imagine as we hear all of this stuff, right? We're all going to, uh, not us. People will experience this, right? I pray that it's none of us, but people will experience this, but yet there's going to be even greater degrees. Some of this is going to be even greater sorrow, greater darkness, greater weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire that is not quenched, torment that is greater than, than, than torment of others. It's going to be a place of no rest. Imagine. And many people say, I can't wait. You know what? I'm going to be partying with the devil. You know what? It's a place of isolation. You're on your own. This is what's crazy. People are so ignorant. Why are they ignorant to this? Because they don't know the gospel. They haven't read the word of God. And as we give you the word of God, you, you realize these things and you understand these things. But I'm going to close with this. Understand this. I want to share with you the grace of God. I want to share with you the love of God. When we think about the love and the grace of God, when you do what you've been doing, when you act the way you've been acting as unbelievers or even in your, 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 your current state, understand this, the heart of God is this. The Lord desires that none should perish, but that they should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.11 it is God's desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look at what he says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but His desire is that they would turn from their ways and live. This is the heart of God. God wants everyone to be saved. And this is what Jesus wants us to take away with today. For those that are cold, for those that are critical, understand this. It is God's desire that you would be what? long-suffering with them, just as they were long-suffering with you. He wants you to pray for those that are cold and critical, just as someone was praying for you. Did you know that all of you are here? I don't know if you know this, but someone was praying for you, for salvation, and now the Lord's, the, the prayer was answered? How many of you have realized, now that you're believers, that someone was praying for you that you didn't even know? It's amazing. All, most of your hands, now that you're saved, you realize this, right? And it's now for you to pray for others. It's for you to love on them and to be patient with them. Remember, I mean, be patient with people. It's, it's important for us to, to exercise that long-suffering, right? How many of us get upset and we're, we're, we want people to be saved? That's not for you to do. 
That's the spirit of God's job. That's God's job to save people. All you got to do is plant seeds, live a life that, that brings the Lord honor and glory, and leave the rest to the Lord. Share His message. And this is what's so awesome. Remember, these are cold hearts. These are critical hearts, which were many of us. And now we know the truth, and the truth has set us free. And the truth is not what lives in us. And this is the truth that He wants us to give out. You know what, I'm going to give you an opportunity now as we close with this. As we think about these cold and critical hearts, maybe this is some of us. Maybe some of you aren't even saved. And you know what, this is a time to make things right with Jesus. Maybe you've been practicing things that you shouldn't be practicing and it's a time to get right with God. You know what, this is, a, this is the, the, the time that we have here is, is the greatest moment in history for all of you, for all of us. It's a, it's a time when you make the greatest decision that you will ever make in your life, and that's making things right with God. If you want to make things right with God, if you want to repent, you want to ask God's forgiveness, you want to come to Him by faith, asking Him to give you a brand new heart, a brand new life, I'm going to ask you now to raise your hand and we're going to pray for you. Anybody wanting this now, raise your hand. And we will pray for you. Anybody. Anybody. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else besides this one? Anyone else? Anyone else? Don't let the devil keep you down. Don't let the devil keep you in chains. Chains to his lies. Chains to, change, in chains to his deception. In chains to sin. You know, if there's anyone else here that wants to make things right with God that wants to experience freedom, forgiveness, that wants to experience blessing, that wants just God to transform your very life, to renew you. I'm going to ask you now to raise your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? And for the believer, if you need to recommit your life to the Lord, anyone else? It's time to recommit. It's time to make things right. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? If the Lord has struck you and you don't have that assurance and you're beginning to doubt, it's time to ask God for forgiveness. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? For those of you that raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask you to enter into my heart. Lord, I need you desperately. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for loving me. Heavenly Father, thank you for pouring out your grace and your mercy upon me. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need your power your power to say no to sin and to live for Christ. Lord Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like the ushers to come forward, please. What we're going to do now is we're going to have the offering. And I want you to know that as believers... You know what? The offering is a sign of worship. Where we say to Jesus, you know what? We don't worship money more than we worship you. We're willing to give back a part of what you've given us. And trust me in this. Believe me, I am a living example of this. That he replenishes and gives you even more of what you give to him. It's all his anyways. And so let's pray for this offering. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. As we give this offering, it's unto you. It's our worship unto you. It's, it's a sign of our love for you to say that, you know what, that we don't have any other idols before you. Lord, I pray that you just pour out your wisdom upon the leaders, the leaders of this church, to use your money, to use the money that you've given us for your glory and for your honor, to spread your kingdom further in this city and the surrounding cities. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.
Bless all of you this morning. 